Welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. This is John Halsman checking in with you as we do weekly to make sense of the beguiling new era that we find ourselves in. And what a fascinating time it is. Today we're going to look at macroeconomics for a minute, but trust me, we'll have some fun with it. Because like a 1950s horror movie, in the back of my ears, I hear the phrase, it's alive, it's alive, which of course is the monster that would always appear on the scene long after everyone thought it had been dead. In this case, the monster is inflation. And the culprit is a Dr. Frankenstein group of people known as the central banks of the world who have totally taken their eyes off the ball, forgotten the beauties of two generations of no inflation and have now let the beast of inflation loose from its cage, which is going to infect us for the next period of time, and indeed well into the foreseeable future. This may be the most important thing going on that very few people are talking about. But boy, have they gotten it wrong. And in scrambling to make up for their mistake, central banks may come to make an even greater one. But first to talk about the it's alive part. One of the great experiences of my life and one of the best things that happens if you're a guy like me is that you get to meet other fascinating people as you travel, and that, of course, makes your life fascinating. I went to a gig long ago in Switzerland, uh, not for a lot of money, but beautiful view, and the highlight of the gig was that I was promised a solo breakfast with Paul Volcker, the legendary Fed chairman who has since passed away. And Volcker and I sat down and I told him of my great admiration for Ronald Reagan. And Volcker told me a story. Of course, he, was re- he worked cheek by jowl with Reagan through the key years where inflation was destroyed. Going into Reagan's tenure, we had stagflation in the 1970s with very low rates of growth and very high rates of inflation. And to deal with inflation that eventually reached 13% at the time, almost an unforeseeable number to those of us who've lived in the last 40 years, Volcker was forced to raise interest rates at the Fed to 21%, a truly eye-watering amount, which indeed slammed all growth into the ground. And when Volcker explained this to Reagan and said, look, Mr. President, I'm going to have to raise, if we want to really kill the beast here, I'm going to have to raise interest rates to eye-watering levels. There's going to be a severe recession, which indeed there was in 1981-82, the worst recession since the Great Depression. There's going to be a serious recession. You're going to take a hit in the midterms. And I can't promise that by 1984 we'll have fully come out of it. So this could damage your re-election prospects. And Reagan, in his amiable, shrewd way, said, reassuring Volcker, Paul, you leave the politics to me. You worry about destroying inflation. Yes, this story works on two levels. On the positive note, it reminds us that we used to have leaders who actually put the country's interests above their own. Reagan cared less about his reelection and more about the fact that inflation was a scourge on everyone. And people forget that. Whereas unemployment is a calamity if you're unemployed, most of the people in the country are not unemployed, and so it does not directly affect them. But inflation affects everyone. It operates, in essence, as a tax on blue-collar workers, the working poor, and the lower middle class. And everyone, everyone, everyone is impacted by it. Volcker was given the go-ahead by Reagan. Come what may, we will accomplish this in policy terms. And they were brilliantly successful. The recession of 1980-82 gave way to a boom period of time, and inflation since the early 80s has lined dormant. 
But sadly, as our 1950s horror movie would have us believe, it's alive. It may be dormant, it may be in a cage, it may have been chained, but inflation was far from dead. And, in, and the COVID virus, one of the great things that may come out of it is that the central bankers took their eyes off the ball and the beast is now loosed from his chains. And we're gonna have to deal with inflation in a serious way for the first time in 40 years. There are three basic factors driving inflation um, as, as we go forward. Uh, one of them is very manageable and two of them are not. Uh, the manageable one that is after COVID, there is a demand supply mismatch. There's been pent up demand as we were all locked down and as we were given money by the government to do nothing. There's been this pent up demand. And now that we've, we're coming out the other side and the world is returning to normal, at least somewhat approximating normal, supply can't keep up with this pent up demand. And this is part of the reason for the bottlenecks that you see in harbors and the problem getting manufactured goods from A to B. It's because there's all this demand and supply was created to be just in time. And we can't continue down this road with all this demand to catch up for. And because of that mismatch, there's going to be inflation. If that's all that we had to worry about, I wouldn't be doing the podcast because this is simply temporary, this inflation. Eventually, demand and supply will indeed reach a new equilibrium as COVID is an aberration. This isn't the norm. And as things return to something approximating normal, this mismatch will be dealt with and supply and demand will reach a new equilibrium and inflation will flatten out. But sadly, which is, this is the fairy tale that central bankers have been telling us and themselves for a period of time. But that's not what's happened. Indeed, we've had a return to the highest rates of inflation in the United States in 30 years. The current inflation rate, the headline rate, is 6.2%. Um, some people try to lower this rate by saying we shouldn't count energy and food and inflation. I've always found this absolutely crazy. The one thing I'm confident about today is that every living person will try to eat something and will probably consume energy in one form or another. So these things shouldn't be excluded from a basket of daily living because they are daily living. So this is nuts. The real rate of inflation in the United States is a whopping 6.2%, the highest in 30 years. And worse, the inflation rate's been above 5% now for the last five months. We were told that inflation would be transitory. This is what Mr. Powell and the Fed have been saying, lying to themselves as much as to the rest of us. And this is a huge analytical error. If only it were this disequilibrium, it would be transitory, but there's far more going on here than simply a problem with pent up demand and supply not catching up. Two other major things are going on at the same time that are more structural, more endemic, and are more of a problem. One of those things we've talked a lot about in these podcasts, which is the Sino-American Cold War. One of the consequences of the Cold War uh, is little remarked upon. There's been one global supply chain under globalization with just-in-time manufacturing. And this one global supply chain sent cheap Chinese manufactured goods throughout the world on very limited time that can be moved from place to place to place. But underlying the macroeconomics is a geopolitical bet. And the bet is that the great powers of the world are not in opposition to each other and will work together to preserve this global supply chain from which they both benefit. In other words, the geoeconomics trumps geopolitics. 
This isn't the case anymore with the Sino-American Cold War in full bloom. People realized during the pandemic that maybe it's not a great thing that China produces most of the world's rare earth supplies, which go into making everything from computers to cars to semiconductor chips, that all these things are dependent on rare earths, most of which are mined in China, and giving China a stranglehold over the global economy at the top end might be a bad thing. Giving China a stranglehold at a lower end. The Chinese, if you remember, early in COVID were the only people who manufactured the masks that were out there. Maybe this isn't a grand idea, that the products that go into the pharmaceuticals that we so need, which are so interlinked, are often made in China. Again, maybe not a great idea, as these people are not neutral, are not our allies, as globalization would dictate, but instead are our geostrategic enemies and adversaries. And so what's happening has begun the end, the deleveraging, the delinking of this one global supply chain that was the most prominent feature of globalization because now geopolitics is trumping geoeconomics after a generation of things being the other way. And let's not go too far. This isn't a light switch. Nobody's going to do away with trade with China. It's simply that there's diversification going on. Hedging is going on. We can't trust or count on the Chinese to always act in global interests. Sometimes they may favor geopolitics over geoeconomics and having eight t-shirts that are cheap to be at the mercy of Xi Jinping perhaps isn't as smart as having two better made t-shirts, more expensive t-shirts, more inflationary t-shirts that are made in Canada or Mexico to not have to deal with Xi Jinping's every whim. And this is geopolitics trumping geoeconomics writ large. So there's a delinking of supply chains. There's a regionalization where you look to your neighbors to do trade. So the EU looks into Europe, which has long been the case. NAFTA, relatively equal in size to the EU single market, looks to itself. The United States buys the lion's share of its oil. It produces it internally, gets it from Canada, and gets it from Mexico. Well, now think of the political risk here. You have to worry about moose in Canada, nothing in the United States, and narco uh, crime in Canada. It's an FBI problem. Compare that to worrying about the political risk of the faraway Middle East, where you have to pay transit costs and deal with vast political risk. Obviously, you'd rather work with your neighbors next door, with whom you share a great deal in common. And so this regionalization was already going on, but it's now amped up because of this delinking of the global supply chain. So look for Asia to trade more with Asia, North America more with itself, and Europe more with Europe. That's, that's going to be part of the new era we live in. Also, there's going to be onshoring. The difference in price has gone down between goods in Asia when you cost, add in transit costs, increasing labor costs in China. As there are fewer workers, the price of a worker rises, and onshoring looks more and more of an option. Boston Consulting Group did an interesting study recently showing that onshoring workers to America for manufacturing, as opposed to getting workers from faraway Asia, that the actual price differential all added in was almost a wash. And if it's a draw, you would rather, of course, have your own workers have jobs and have the security of supply that comes with working with people internally rather than being dependent on the Chinese Communist Party. So onshoring and regionalization are part of this delinking of the supply chain. And it's simply a hedging. It's not a light switch. You don't turn China off. 
you'd also keep that one global supply chain in addition to a regional supply chain, in addition to onshoring. You hedge. So if things go pear-shaped with China, you're still afloat. All of this is happening as a result of the Sino-American Cold War. All of this makes eminent sense. All of this is inflationary. It isn't the cheapest and easiest way to do macroeconomics, but it does allow for a much more secure geopolitical situation where you look at the underlying gamble made in the era of globalization just ended, which is the U.S. and China will act like Chimerica, will work together amicably, and you acknowledge the geostrategic reality that we're not going to act amicably anymore. And as a result of this, you're going to have this delinking and hedging of the one supply chain, and this is endemically inflationary. And that's happening. And then in addition to this, the central bankers made a breathtaking error. They poured gasoline onto an open fire, terrified of COVID dislocations. And let's remember, people were worried about, will anyone ever have a job again? While well, we all hunkered down for the better part of two years now, uh, in Europe, they had furloughs where governments paid workers not to be fired. In America, being more of a free market entity, the workers went into unemployment but then came back. But in both cases, terrified of COVID dislocations, both the Trump administration and even more the Biden administration went ahead and threw money at the problem. Overwhelmingly, far greater amounts of money than were, were used at the time of the financial crisis of 2008. 2009. They simply threw money at the problem with FDR-like Keynesian economics coming to the fore. The problem with this um, is that they didn't see pent-up demand, as we talked about, taking care of much of this problem. They didn't know what was going to happen, and dealing with uncertainty, they decided it was better to err on the side of printing money and spending it like drunken sailors to prop up the economy. They didn't realize that naturally the economy would come back to equilibrium largely, that pent-up demand would take care of a lot of this problem once we came out the other end of COVID. And so they adopted an FDR-like style printing presses. They printed money, they spent it like drunken sailors, and they didn't realize that with already having pent-up demand, they were merely pouring gasoline onto an open fire. And the two kind of exemplars of the opposite points of view here are Paul Krugman, their Yasser Arafat of macroeconomics. Wrong about everything. If you want to know the bankruptcy of the Nobel Prize system, it's a left-wing series of Europeans giving a left-wing American economist a prize. Extraordinary. He's the Yasser Arafat of macroeconomics. If Krugman told me to go left, I'd go right. If he told me to go up, I'd go down. He's been wrong about populism, wrong about Brexit, wrong about Europe, wrong about Trump, and certainly wrong about inflation. While it may not affect his sinecure at the New York Times, it does affect the rest of us. And like most lefties, he is found out in his not seeing inflation coming to hit us like a two by four. And he's been absolutely wrong about this. Far better analytically has been the Democrat Larry Summers kind of doyen of the Clinton New Democratic scene. Let's remember the Clinton administration acted in good Eisenhower fashion in balancing the budget two of the eight years Clinton was in power. And Summers is part of this old-fashioned, old-style Democratic establishment that frankly did a very good job on macroeconomics. And Summers points out in response to Krugman 
that the fiscal stimulus of the Biden and Trump years, when you add up all the emergency spending bills, amounts to 14 to 15 percent of GDP. Let me repeat that. American government extra stimulus spending to deal with their terror and COVID dislocations amounts to around 15 percent of spending, fiscal stimulus, 15% of GDP in an economy only a couple of percentage points short of capacity. So let's say we're doing 15% excess GDP stimulus spending for an economy that's only 2% below capacity. Inevitably, if you're spending 15% more money for an economy already running at almost full capacity or normal capacity because pent-up demand catches things up you will have inflation. The math is simply the math. However many times Paul Krugman is wrong, and analytically, again, why isn't this guy held to any kind of standards in a Republican manner for being wrong endlessly? Summers, on the other hand, deserves great credit for saying this early, often, and convincingly. 15% GDP extra stimulus, 2% below capacity leads to inflation. And that's indeed what we have. And again, as I said, this is the main reason I think Biden's midterms are going to be a tsunami against the Democrats, because inflation affects literally everyone. Because we haven't had to deal with this thing for the better part of two generations, we've forgotten how miserable inflation is. It's a tax on all our earnings. It makes those earnings in real terms less significant and particularly hits blue-collar workers, lower-middle-class people, and the working poor with a tax they can't afford to pay, all because of government terror at COVID. The danger now, though, is that interest rates are a blunt tool. Having gotten it wrong and having panicked, and I would advise you to read Jerome Powell's testimony yesterday where he's backing off as fast as he possibly can from the idiotic Fed predictions of the last six months, instead now saying, gosh, Maybe it won't be transitory. He took the word transitory out of inflation. Day late and a dollar short. Because they've been wrong, the danger is twofold. Either in blunt terms, and that's all interest rates are, it's the bluntest of policy instruments. They too slowly raise interest rates, thereby not doing away with the beast of inflation, and then inflation continues to grow. Or worse, they raise interest rates too quickly and cut off growth, and we have the stagflation of the 1970s. The idea that in Goldilocks terms they're going to get this precisely right sounds unlikely given that this is a group of people who have analytically missed the bus in the worst way possible for the past 40 years. So we are now presented with the monster being very, very much alive. And the fault is that of our central bankers. And we will rue the day that we ruined the gift of Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan which was to quell inflation for 40 years. Let's honor that, even as the monster of inflation, like in 1950s horror movies, proves it is alive and stalking us. And this will be an endemic fact of the world we live in well into the medium term, and it's something we will come back to again and again. We got this right. Others got it wrong. Take this to the bank. Thanks very much for listening to this latest edition of Around the World in 20 Minutes, where it's been fun to talk macroeconomics and why the central bankers of the world have so missed the score as to what's going on. For those of you who haven't subscribed yet, please do so. Thank you to so many of you 
who've been subscribing to our work. We are honored and will continue forward with Substack, our favorite platform, doing more and more here because we can talk directly to you in an unfiltered manner, giving you the best political risk analysis in the world and having fun doing so. To those of you who have subscribed, I'm about to have the morning's espresso. Please do give $70 a year, $7 a month. It's the price of half of Starbucks, I'm alerted. Again, I don't get out very much. But they told me it's now half a Starbucks. There's inflation for you. If you do give this amount, Substack works on the honor system. And for only $7 a month or $70 a year, we will give you more and more world-class content about how the world works and have great fun in our community in doing so. Thanks ever so much.